0: You're listening to Farm to Tabor. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Farm to Tabor. Today we have Rebecca Seidel, a dairy farmer and artisan cheesemaker in Pennsylvania. She is so full of good information and stories. She's got some really crisp thoughts on feminism and daring. I think this might be the longest episode Farm to Tabor's ever done. And I know we said that we weren't going to split episodes into multiple parts anymore, but this one turned out to be just a smidge too long for Patreon. So we have to break it into two. So we're going to do that. But this whole thing is legit from front to back, and it will all be publicly available on the SoundCloud, both segments, and a little bit of extra stuff on Patreon. So... Thanks for listening. We're going to dive right in.
1: I am a multi-generational dairy farmer in Womensworth, Pennsylvania. Um, I spent nine years as a dairy manager and kitchen manager for a value-added dairy farm. That means we made our own products and sold them to direct market rather than selling them to a co-op. Um, and right now I am in the process of getting my own dairy cheese business, yogurt business
0: up and running. Awesome. That is so interesting. And I would love it if we could talk more about what a co-op is. Like in the dairy world, like what is that? What does that mean?
1: Um, so there are different types of co-ops. Uh, that is the person, the, the organization that a dairy farmer's milk goes to. On the majority of dairy farms, you milk your cows, your milk goes into a bulk tank to cool it, um, and then a milk truck comes to a farm every day or every other day and pumps your milk out and takes it to a centralized plant for bottling or phosphatizing.
0: Cool. And so, um, and I think that's part of what can be confusing about folks is there are so many different kinds of cooperatives. Um, Yeah and also I think folks who don't work in ag like there's other kinds of non-ag cooperatives so that's what people think so, um, all <laughs> so the term co-op
1: is generally pretty touchy-feely in the food community yeah. and that's not necessarily how it is in the farm community right. um, you can also have the option of just buying into a co-op so you have a partial share in it or you could also just ship to your co-op mm-hmm. um, so different farmers have different relationships with the people who cost
0: with their milk. Right. Do you have any feel for, like, how many people tend to belong, at least in your local area, like, be in the co-op as opposed to, like, just sell to it?
1: I mean, everyone. Um, <laughs> you drive up and down the road to dairy farms, and you see the signs on um, outside of the road saying who they ship to. Mm-hmm. Uh, around here, there's Clover Farms. There's Swift, There is lots of land to lake. There are some smaller producers, some more local, like Crider Farms. Uh, There are also organic uh, Mm -hmm. milk pickups and some grass-filled milk milk pickups. Mm In far more than when I was a child, there are some places doing independent processing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most operations use it as a side gig Mm -hmm. uh, to to deal with southern milk and to increase the revenue of their farm. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's few and far between.
0: Right, okay. So that's really interesting. So you can have multiple co-ops covering the same location, and people can kind of decide which one they want to be involved with.
1: Yeah, and a lot of it also depends on the quality of your milk, because different milk is different grades. Uh, Different quality of milk is different grades. Mm -hmm. And if a co-op is picking it up for processing for butter, they might want to hire butterfat content. Or if you're just running a – how do I say this – grade b type dairy your milk might be taken in for cheese processing or for powdered milk Mm -hmm. so depending on the quality standards of your operation there are different uh types of cokes to pick up at different types of processing that can happen to
0: your milk right okay so if you've ever seen i guess like the grade a kind of like pasteurized milk ordinance that's referring to like the the high-end stuff um yeah yeah I don't know more about what that means other than, like, it's the high-end. I don't know exactly what specs that means, but... There are
1: are certain um, standards for grade-A milk. It's actually really interesting. I was in the PMO the other day looking up whether I can use milk cans to store milk or not, Mm -hmm. and I was very surprised they still had a uh, clause for the conditions under which you could use the milk cans for storing and shipping milk.
0: Delicious. Wow. That's new to me as well. (laughs) So well, that was, was actually interesting. I, I went to an old farm that actually used to use milk
1: cans, mm-hmm. and they still had their their chiller box that was installed in the milk house. It was rusted out, but I never. I just looked it up and found out about one, and then I saw it, and it was, it was kind of nesting.
0: <laughs> it's one of those things where once you hear about something, you start seeing it everywhere. Yeah. Amazing. So, uh, something that's in the news right now, and I, I kind of want to pick your brain on this, and every location might be different, but there's a lot in the news about how dairy farming is not going so well right now. Um, could you tell us, I guess, a little bit about how that's looking, where you guys are at?
1: Um, I'm seeing a lot of desperation. Um, we're in the area where there is a uh, dairy farmer marketing campaign going on. Mm-hmm. Um, they take baleage bells, which are the large white plastic-colored marshmallows you
0: see around <laughs> some farms. Yeah. And they're writing um, uh, milk,
1: 97% fat-free, drink whole milk in schools, butter is better. Um, and that's been a marketing campaign that farmers are doing themselves, putting that at the end of their lane. The veterinarians have it, pictures of it taped onto their trucks mm-hmm. um, as a solidarity thing. And I think uh, they're... They mean it as a marketing campaign um, to get consumers to drink whole milk. Uh, I have some, some complex feelings about that. I don't think <laughs> that's necessarily effective. Um, yeah. And I can get into reasons why. Um, but it's, it's not looking good. I, you know, I remember going through a downswing in milk production. I think I was 11 or 12 mm-hmm. um, when my parents were dealing with a similar downswing. And there was another one about a decade ago. Yeah. And basically... Farmers are not being paid the cost of production to produce milk. Um, And there is a lot of, there are farmers going out of business. Um, There are people cutting costs. Uh, You can see it in, I know I go to the hay auction every week, and the milk checks are sent out monthly and if you get to the hay auction the week before milk checks come out you can get really good hay deals because no one has money and everyone's taking stuff out of their barn and trying to make it another week
0: huh. um
1: so it's it's not a pretty situation for dairy farmers to be in um it's 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 sad because you know i was just i was on to drive a couple earlier today around around my home area um And I see lots of farms that operationally are really nice. The cows are clean. They look healthy. Um, You can see into the open barns. They're eating their TMR. They're in great body condition. People are working. You see not a lot of manure. It's pretty clean. Um, I think there's a lot of people out there who are working very hard and doing a good job Um, and they're not able to make it based on where the price of milk is right
0: now. Yeah. Is there a particular, you mentioned there's kind of multiple grades and genres of milk. Is there a particular one that's getting hit harder or less hard than others?
1: I do not know. Um, I do have a friend who is in the conventional market and they're getting by fairly well and they have a pretty high fat and protein because Some haulers will pay more if you have more fat and protein because that means you can get higher cheese yield out of it or more butter fat from it. Um, And they're doing okay. But I think overall the market is hurting. In fact, I know it's hurting. Um, A local organic farm who is one of the – they have a grass-fed organic uh, operation going on, and it is so neat and clean – and well-organized people you see that operation you're kind of in awe about how well they've organized themselves right um and they're getting the organic milk price and they recently had to lay off their employees mm-hmm. and go back to doing a family-based uh farm operation mm-hmm. to help m- make ends meet which is it's fair you don't want to see people losing their jobs over there
0: right yeah um can you tell us a little bit about your how your experience with value adding on the farm? Like instead of just selling bulk milk, you sell you know like cheese or ice cream. Places sell butter, things like that. How does this play into the economic picture? Um, well, it, it's
1: interesting. You have more people who are doing value added. Um, You have more people who are trying to get into the raw milk business because the raw milk business is uh, a market that traditional companies are not comfortable with because there's a higher liability. Mm-hmm. Um, An individual farm selling less amount of milk can take on the liability on their own farm. And so you don't have, you know, a competing large company uh, for it. And more people are trying to get into that market. I don't know if that's necessarily a good idea.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, just as far as, how do I say it? When you're making business choices kind of out of a... Um, desperation to continue farming the way you've been farming Mm I don't always know if those choices are made with
0: the most with a lot of information and planning behind them right yeah we my family still lives in Green Bay Wisconsin my parents and my mom was a pediatric nurse for a long time like she worked in a pediatrician's office and it's a very dairy heavy region and she was like listen we're just one pediatric clinic you know in in a region of you know hundreds of thousands of people And every month, we get some kid with, like, bloody diarrhea. Yeah. (laughs) It's always because of salmonella that was in the bulk tank. You know, it was a dairy farming family, and they've you know, that was just a thing that they did, but, like, salmonella kind of comes and goes. And then if it happens when you have a small child who doesn't have the greatest immune system, you're going to wind up with bloody diapers. And And that's, like... Really severe, like bloody diarrhea. Like that's just the really crazy, like catastrophic infections in one pediatric clinic. So, like, how many people yeah. are really getting sick from that? And it's it's like it's not like it was even bottled or anything. It was straight from the bulk tank. It was really fresh. And I'm just kind of like,
1: ah. <laughs> well, it's weird. you know, I have I have, I've been having an evolving opinion on this. Yeah. I grew up on bulk tank milk. Yeah. Um, and my dad was always really proud of our bacteria count. We had, like, a lower bacteria count but it's actually in pasteurized bottled milk. <laughs> and, you know, I never had, I think in school the first time I actually had, like, milk from the store, and I could never figure out why it tasted terrible because um, I just wasn't used to the flavor.
0: Yeah.
1: So I, and I, just, I didn't actually even understand that pasteurization was the thing that happened when it went to the store I thought was, like, a cardboard thing. Mm. Um, so I, I grew up on it and I never saw a problem with it. And I worked on a raw milk dairy. The Daiyat the, the dairy uh, I worked on also sold, sold raw milk. Yeah. And that's when I start seeing problems with it being sold. Yeah. Um, I had no problem consuming it, although when I got pregnant, I totally went cold turkey and I haven't had it since. And I necessarily would not, I would not necessarily give raw milk to my child unless. I knew the operation where it was coming from and the health of the animal. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and generally, I was probably in control of that operation. Yeah. Uh, because it's just, how do I say it? it all, as an adult, it seems like a reasonable risk to take. Mm-hmm. Um, but the people who give raw milk to their families are often doing it for what they consider health reasons. And I don't think the health reasons, the possible health reasons to drink raw milk. Uh, outweigh the possible dangers of
0: drinking raw milk when you have small children. Yeah, well, there's, you know, kind of a lot of folks talking about health effects, and that's great and all. They're like, look, there's this correlation. But also, if you control for wealth, like, it tends to be wealthier people who go out and get raw milk, because it's harder to get. Yeah. So you have to have a lot of money, and you have to have a lot of leisure time and transportation. So if you control for wealth, the health effects of raw milk disappear. It's really just yeah, richer people are healthier.
1: Wow! <laughs> And the other thing is, I think that some people might have negative reactions to some of the processing we do to milk. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, homogenization breaks up the milk globules into like smaller uh, pieces. And mm-hmm. back in the day, air shifters, thats the breed I have. Um, yeah. A lot of stateriums and hospitals maintain them mm-hmm. because they can be considered the milk easier to digest based on the size of the fat globule.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and I think we lose some of those. I think some people respond to different processes and different types of milk differently and when you have everything being pulled together as bulk milk into uh, one package, you might miss out on the different types of uh, well, the different changes in processing from unhomogenized milk or low pasteurization or different breeds. I do think you'll probably react to some of that stuff but I don't think there's any magical holistic effect that um, raw milk is going to cure your eczema and your depression <laughs> and make you a body, a weightlifter, you
0: know? Yeah. It's like, I didn't even have to do anything. Just drink the milk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
1: I know. There are people who feel that way. Like, there mm. are, I knew weightlifters who would chug, like, a gallon a day while lifting. Mm. Or people who said, well, this won't affect my cholesterol because it's raw. And that none of that makes any sense. Right. Um, and that's one of the problems I had in the raw milk business was, you know, you were dealing with people who had these opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't want to say to your consumer like, hey, what do you believe is not real? Because no one wants to hear that when they're going <laughs> out to
0: buy something. Right. But I had, I had a hard time, you know, towing the line for,
1: you know, because actually a lot of the people we sold to, there are welfare people, mm-hmm. but were community members who were coming in and getting raw milk for their, you know, family of five. Mm-hmm. And you could tell
0: that some, some of these families do not have that much, and to pay the extra money because they thought it was good for their family was kind of hard for me to say. I know, yeah. Like, I don't know, I feel like you see that a lot in, like, sustainable food circles. And this is something yeah. you've mentioned before on Twitter, so I want to follow up with it, is yeah, um, the difficulty of kind of selling local foods without getting into, like, pseudoscience. Because people okay. really seem to respond to it, and you're like, I don't know. But yeah, there's, there's pseudoscience and I, I
1: can talk about that. And there's also <laughs> just the whole cult of, of food being better. You know, one of yeah. the things is uh, when I was selling uh, milk to consumers, they say, oh, well, it's so good to see a small farm. But cows are treated so much better in a small farm. And that's not the case, you know, yeah. the far, the, the humane treatment of the cows has a lot more to do with the people doing it and the systems they have in place
0: than how many cows are on the farm. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and it and would always, it would bum me out because are you're
1: doing disservice to other farmers who are out there doing a really good job and also yeah. like there are some terrible small farmers out there too, I mean... Mm-hmm. You know, just because
0: your cow has a name doesn't mean you don't beat it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that was... <laughs> no, I mean, that was kind of a, an interesting, like, learning experience in produce as well, was we kind of have this dogma of small farms are better and they treat everything yeah. better. And then you kind of go out there and you see some small farms doing great, um, but they don't stay small for long, generally, because at least in produce, like, it's such a growing market that anybody who's kind of, like, you know, got a decent amount of having their stuff together is going to do fine and they're going to grow. Um... You know, and so you've got some small farms that are doing, you know, well, they're doing all right. They're doing the things they should be doing. And then you have other ones that are just, like, crap-tacular. craptacular. <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> like, yeah. I would see stuff, and I'm like, this can't be real. Um, and then, you know, you've got some big ones that are kind of shady, um, especially the ones that got big back in the day before there's a lot of oversight, and they're just kind of locked into that pattern. But, yeah. like, especially ones that got big more recently, like, they're really tight. They're kind of, you know, they're doing it well, and it's... Um, you know, like, <laughs> they're treating their people right because they're big enough that they can afford to pay people things. It's crazy. It's great.
1: And the same is true of the organic market. Um, my former boss was a veterinarian, and when he would, was doing herd work down in Texas, he would refer to the organic farms as heifer mills because every mm-hmm. week you'd have a new shipment of cow heifers coming in because anytime you had a cow that would get a health issue, you just treat them with antibiotics and ship them off. Yeah. Because they just constantly have this overturn in the herd to maintain our organic label. Oh, my God. And one of my, one of my, i don't know how well informed this is—but one of my feelings about herds are: I do think cows are very, they're emotional animals, they're intelligent animals, mm-hmm. and they're social animals, and herd hierarchy and stability means quite a bit to them. And to be constantly being trucked in and trucked out, I don't think of different animals. I think you know. Staying off on one farm, having a fairly stable life, knowing your herd mate, knowing who you're going to,
0: like, mess with on any particular day right.
1: is better for the cow's overall health than going from farm to farm, that sort
0: of thing. Yeah, like, just the transportation <laughs> itself, and then, like, you know... Oh, transportation's if, so traumatic. <laughs> yeah, and then, like, just being new in a place, it's like the new kid in high school yeah. syndrome. You're just, like, you know, feeling yeah. really exposed and on the spot and isolated, and that happens in cows. They're social animals. Um, yeah,
1: as soon as you bring a new cow into the herd, everyone starts picking on them. Yeah. Like, I have one cow who, who came in a shaft at the truckload. She knows everyone. But <laughs> she showed up in, like, September because um, she was being built on a different farm. Mm-hmm. And they're still all being dicks to her.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Like, it's been
0: months. And
1: I'm just like, could you guys leave Quince alone, please? Like, could you just let her be in your herd? <laughs>
0: No, that'd be crazy. <laughs> no, yeah. Oh man. So, so one of the things that you're doing a little bit different is you're you're milking Ayrshires, which is a different breed of cattle than the usual. So, yeah. tell us a little bit about that. Like, what are they? What kind of fueled that decision?
1: Um. So, the, what fueled that decision is I grew up in a herd of mixed Holsteins and Ayrshires. Mm-hmm. My great grandfather had Ayrshires, and they ended up, you know, in my dad's family. And I like them a lot, personality-wise. Some people say that sharks have personality as a good thing. <laughs> some say it as a bad thing. I kind of, I really like slightly difficult animals. Um, <laughs> it makes me feel, you know, having an animal that loves you and adores you is great. Mm-hmm. But, like, taking an animal that really doesn't particularly like you and getting them to, like, okay, you can milk me, that's that's our relationship. You know, that, that, that's a lot more emotion-fulfilling to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, they, they're kind of smart. They're, uh, they're stubborn, but they're also, you know, you can see them thinking. Yeah. And I, I kind of like mischief a little bit. <laughs> um, as far as from a business decision, I started my herd with three animals that my uncle had been breeding out in Colorado. I bought, the, bought them and brought them back, and they were from my parents, my grandfather's original line. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I had to found the family connection there. They also have a higher cheese yield than other breeds. Mm-hmm. They are super hardy. Um, I don't want this to reflect badly on me, but some people say that the only reason why some farmers have air shards is that they would kill anything else. <laughs> um, because they, they will eat sticks. I mean, that's, and I'm not saying really in a good way, but they're very, they're a good grazing breed. They're, they, uh, you know, they eat. They eat well. They can live under negative conditions. They can be outside. Um, a lot of the, like, Holsteins have been bred um, mm-hmm. to be a more indoor cow, a more streamlined line cow, um, a milk-producing machine. Yeah. And because I'm doing a grazing operation, I want them that graze efficiently, and mm-hmm. I really do enjoy their hardiness. I'm not having tons of health problems. They just kind of take care of themselves um, other than weird you know, uh, health issues, you know, acute health issues, I
0: should say. Yeah, well, they're not like constantly getting into trouble. Like, <laughs> you no, know,
1: I mean, well, like. they, they get into their own sort of trouble, but like, it's more like, oh, Kipling got her neck chain stuck on the fence, you know? It's <laughs> yeah. not, you know, having regular, you know, digestive problems or hoof problems, that sort of thing.
0: Right, exactly. It's not like just constant chronic stuff. Yeah. Yeah, they've they kind of got like that go out and get it mentality, it sounds like. Um. Yeah, it was kind of interesting that you mentioned like, you know, kind of like really chill animals versus ones that have a little bit more mischief in them. I worked a little bit with horses and mules and like everybody talks about how mules are terrible and uh, I love them. They're the best. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like they, they think a little bit more than horses do, like no shade on horses. They're cool, too, but but they kind of there's a little bit more there there.
1: Working with something that's like working back with me, you know. Yeah. I, and I try to understand why, in a more traditional dairy, um, you would want a animal that works more as part of a system. There was this great quote I once read about artisan cheese, which is the difference between artisan cheese and industrial cheese, and in that is that in artisan cheese, the cheesemaker adjusts the milk, whereas in industrial cheese, you adjust the milk to the, uh, to the. Uh, Cheese, and is a system making it I oh. kind of feel the same way like small farms versus large farms in small farms you kind of adapt yourself to like what the animals need whereas on a large farm you adapt the animals to what the farm
0: needs right yeah yeah that's a really interesting way of looking at it um I want to pick your brain a little bit on marketing because that's kind of an area that it seems like that's, that's really kind of the role you've taken in your family's operation is kind of more like yeah. that, that inside-outside interface let's, let's talk about that I don't know. Um, I don't know. Like I can tell a funny story from a produce farm that I saw once that maybe illustrates some of the <laughs> some of the common issues in agriculture that I think. Yeah,
1: like, yeah go for it, and I'll, I'll bounce off of that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that that's kind of like basically what you're dealing with. So, <laughs> once upon a time, uh, I went to a, a produce farm, and it was a family operation, and I show up, and you know. When we get the application, like when they tell you you need to go do an audit, they'll kind of send you the the paperwork from when they did the application because it's like, what do they grow? What are their names, phone number? Like, you know, where are they? How big are they? That, just the basic stuff. Um, so I'm looking it over. I'm like, oh, this place is pretty big. Okay, it happens. Um, we get there, and then you always go through that information with them before you start doing, like, a food safety audit because, like, most of the time something on the application is wrong because uh, <laughs> it's just like... A weird piece of paperwork, and they never turn out right the first time. And it's it's often you only do it once a year, right? So anyway, um, so you're like, hey, you know, where are you growing right now? Versus like your entire year's portfolio with a lot of vegetables. It's a seasonal thing. Like especially in the south, you have your summer and your fall crops. So you're like, okay, what's actually in the ground and getting harvested right now that we're gonna see today? Um, how many acres are there of that? Like where in your plots of land are they located? So we can figure out where we need to go and all that stuff. Um, (laughs) like is the crew active today? Have they started yet? When are they going to end? All that good stuff. So we're talking and, uh, we get to the part, like what kind of acreage are you guys running? And she was like, 7,000 acres, 6,000 acres. I can't remember. And she had to go into records and (laughs) because they couldn't remember if they were farming six or 7,000 acres. Um, Which is, like, I get how it happens, but it's kind of a big discrepancy. (laughs) Um, You know, either way, they'll keep you busy enough to forget, I guess. Um, But then, like, periodically on and off throughout the audit, like, they would grumble about how they were getting terrible prices because they were selling to a broker. And I guess, like, for anybody who's not familiar with egg who may be listening, so um, you can either basically sell your stuff directly to a grocery chain or, you know, a distributor or you can have a broker do that for you. So you're, like, adding another step of removal between you and the customer. And for smaller operations where you just don't have, like, the infrastructure and, like, the, the people and the bandwidth available to do that because you're, like, 15 acres. But that kind of makes sense. I get how it happens. But they're doing six or 7,000 acres. Like, they could definitely afford to hire someone to do that. And they weren't. And they're constantly building about the prices they're getting they're like well they just don't care you know and, and they're out to make a buck for themselves and you're like yeah <laughs> that's business that's they're just here as a charity for you and like you know you got six or seven thousand acres like you could be in business to make a buck for yourselves you can afford to do that and so like I just I think about these guys constantly because they really had this attitude that the world owed it to them to go the extra mile to make sure that they didn't have to do as much work that they could totally afford to do Um, and really should have been doing and you're like maybe find that extra thousand acres you lost and monetize that and like (laughs) use that to pay for a a sales guy on your own i don't know i just think about that all the time so carry on um so well first
1: of all the reason why i'm doing value out product is is twofold one i do want to have a small farm um I just, I like working with small mouth cows. It lets me have my hands in all parts of the operation. Um, and I did develop a sub-skills for cheese making and value-out product making. I did yogurt, kefir, chocolate milk, ricotta, Greek yogurt. Um, so I have that in my back pocket, and not everyone has that. Yeah. But it just, a, a sort of vertically integrated, everything occurs on one site operation is, it just tells, like, the style of life I want to have yeah um and also you know i saw my parents farming for 25 years and my dad's not in great physical shape now my mom had to have a hip replacement um and i want to you know a small you know only milking less cows just involves less knee bends it involves i want to try one day milking so that's one you know oh yes kneeling you go through less a day yeah um and i also want to start only very slowly with employees i had employees in my previous job for a long time, and I just kind of want some relaxing time to figure out my operation for myself before I bring other people on to, into an operation. Right, yeah, because um, so like, It works for me in, in the way I want it to work, and I don't know, like I said, I think a lot of farmers are looking towards the possibility of doing value-added uh, right now as a way of helping their farms survive, um, and, you know, as we talked about pasteurization. The, the step from taking milk from a bulk tank to, to milk from the edible product involves like a sanitary step mm-hmm. um, which I don't know if every farm is geared up for you know ideally I would almost rather have a second site to do my processing on the, <laughs> not on the farm just so I have a, a division between this is the site where the cow should is and right. this is the site where we make food
0: right um,
1: so what I see I, I, I'm very I, I'm very glad that farmers are starting to into their own hands
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but I don't want people to do it for the wrong reasons um, you should do it if you want to make uh, a food that's going to be ready for sale not necessarily do it so you can keep farming as you farm
0: yeah
1: um, you know there's far- farmers dairy farmers have not had to take marketing into their own hands um, many times in the recent future um, let's say last I don't know since, since co-ops showed up it used to be You'd have your milk cans, you'd put them at the end of the road. Some would put them, put them, pick them up, take them to a creamery. Sometimes you'd even get your skim milk back. They'd just take the butter off and send the milk back for you to feed to your calves or something. Huh. Um, and for a lot of those farms, milk was not their primary source of income. It was part of the whole operation. Oh. Um, is, you know, you milk your six cows, you drink what you eat for your family, you ship the rat. Mm-hmm. Um, Cops allowed farms to become larger, produce way more milk than they would ever need. And you have a bulk tank to come, have a uh, truck to come pick it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've relied on that market to fund their lives, and so that they are subject to the whims of the milk price. So when there's too much milk, Mm -hmm. the price goes down. When there's not enough milk, the price goes up. Um, And this benefits the people who survive through the downfalls because suddenly, you know, your neighbor's out of business and you can pick up their business and now you're getting $22 per 100 instead of 16 and you're flush with cash. Yeah. And then the market crashes again and hopefully you scrolled enough away during that time and didn't reinvest so much into your farm that you're just producing more milk and also running on debt. Yeah. Um, it, it's, a, how, it's not a functional system uh, how mm-hmm. we currently price milk and how farmers get paid for their milk because there shouldn't be a time when you're running for months on end below the cost of production. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was working on my business plan, I was working off a Penn State spreadsheet, um, that had how much uh that had the cost of production, what what a farm needed to to fund all their all their um, expenses. And that estimated around nine dollars nineteen dollars per hundred ways. Mm-hmm. And right now the price has been running around fifteen, sixteen for uh over a year. Mm-hmm. So almost any farm in that situation is running at a net negative right now. Um, You're probably surviving because you have people doing other things, you have people working off the farm, um, but it's not a long-term viable market for for anyone.
0: Um,
1: And I really wish, you know, like I said, farmers right now are trying to market themselves directly to consumer. Um, There's this narrative out there that the reason why people are drinking less whole milk, less fluid milk. People are consuming the same amount of like cheese, yogurt, all that, but they're consuming less fluid milk. Mm -hmm. Um, It's because when Michelle Obama wrote her lunch program, she had (laughs) people drink low-fat milk, and they're saying that my entire generation does not like milk anymore because we were forced to drink low-fat milk, Mm -hmm. um, which is why they're pushing this idea of like, drink whole milk. Mm -hmm. Um, And first of all, I think Blame the consumer for the consumer choices. That's a that's a losing proposition. Yeah. Um. You can't shame someone into into consuming your product. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while it may feel very good for dairy farmers to be seeing it, it feels as though that they're putting the finger on their scale. Mm-hmm. Um. It's probably be much better for them to figure out some way that the milk commodity would have other price regulations in it. Or, or number of cattle regulations, mm-hmm. um, that they can adjust the overall fluid milk um, production on, like, a regional or national level, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to just uh, banking on farmers going out of business when the price goes down. Right. Well, um, because it, it's a shame.
0: Yeah. Well, it seems like that's a, a really a consistent theme in U.S. agriculture is we're just going to make more and more and more. And then when we flood the market, we're just going to f- basically bend the world to our will instead of kind of like reflecting as an industry, like what we've done to get to this point. Um, you see that a lot with corn and soybeans, like every time the market floods, they just invent another use for them, you know. Yeah. Um, and. That's harder to do with milk. (laughs) You've kind of already. They're they're totally trying. Um, I was just looking, there was a grant, and one of
1: the uh, possible parts of the grant you could apply for was for new and creative uses of milk. And I think they're working on like casein wax coatings for things, that, you know, um, Mm. whey byproduct films, that sort of thing, like other non food uses
0: for milk. Okay, so now we're looking at the industrial feedstock market. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) That's great. Um, so one of the things you kind of mentioned that I'd like to circle back to is how, um, you know, a lot of folks have off-farm jobs. And it's it's funny because, um, you know, if you mention that to folks who aren't familiar with agriculture, they're like, my God, you know, like farmers can't make a living farming. They have to take other jobs. Um, and if, if you work in agriculture, you're like, well, everybody has 14 side hustles. That's just how it works. That's how it's always worked. Um, I don't know. Like, it's, it's kind of interesting because ideally you want to be able to do a thing full time. Um, but that, as far as I know, has just been the reality for so long is like farming is a side hustle that you do while you're also doing well, I, a bunch of it, other things. I think it depends what sort of farming you do. I mean, yeah. it's totally, you know, there are guys who do hay
1: and they work normal jobs and take off to mow their hay. There's guys who do some corn yeah. and like they, they manage their life on corn. And there's something that, that lends it to like beef farms. You can totally operate a smallish beef farm and have a job. Oh, yeah. Um, my husband's constantly like, why don't we just have beef? And I'm like, well, I'm a vegetarian, that would be kind of awkward. But even though I tell him, I'm cool with eating meat. I'm down with eating meat. I sell meat. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I like to work with my animals more than eat them. Yeah. Um, but there, there, are, there are types of agriculture you can do and have side jobs. With farming, you know, I grew up with both of my parents they milked every day for 25 years, mm-hmm. um, except for one weekend they took off, and my uncle broke the gutter uh, cleaner, and they never went on vacation again. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that their farm might have been more viable and their life more viable if they actually had embraced the possibility of working off farm and bringing more help on farm. Um, mm-hmm. My mom did do some substitute teaching, but that was. You know, whenever they needed a teacher, and she would only do half days, so it wasn't a lot. Yeah,
0: it's funny. Um, but both my parents had education skills beyond the
1: traditional farm education skills that so they could have marketed it to bring more money into the household and take the burden off of their bodies by, you know, bringing in work. But so that was they also had some bad experiences with employees that I think led them to just like, hey, why don't we just do all this ourselves? Right. Um, which I think is an argument for better employees. Not yeah. uh, for not having employed. Yeah. Um, but, but, yeah, a lot of farmers, you have a one spouse working on a site, generally a wife, um, mm-hmm. or you have multi-generational families where you have a father and a son and daughters and wives, and they're kind of all trading on and off milking and on and off management. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of my perspective on, far, on dairy farming, at least, is... How do I say this? It, you know, at least with one, one or two full-time people... Um, to maintain the continuity of the operation, because right. uh, it's not so how they say. It? So these cows you're just kind of you're laying them graze, you're throwing some supplements at them, you're checking on their body condition, dealing with health issues. Yeah. But it's not this twice a day or three times a day, every day process. Um, where you also have like lots of sanitary. Um, and you have to build sanitary conditions into your milking system. Yeah. Um, and I sometimes I think farmers end up stretched too thin trying to, uh, manage all that. And on hmm. the same, on the same kind of subject, a lot of farmers around my area are Benonite farmers, mm-hmm. where you have a husband and a wife and like, you know, six, seven children who are also all involved in the operation working together. Yeah. Um, and you're, you're pulling farm labor from your, from your children and your family. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how some other farms around here work. Yeah. Um, where
0: you don't have to necessarily work off site, but you have you have more than just your like two point five kids or whatever. Right. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point you bring up is that like um, you know, it obviously depends on the kind of farming, but the jack of all trades thing, like in real life, doesn't work out too great, you know. Um, and, and some of the more successful operations that you see, you know, of any type, um, are the ones that have more people. And it's it's kind of funny that folks again, we've kind of had people equating small equals good, big equals bad. Um, but that smallness of size, like it really does have an impact. Like it really does strain what you can do. Like there's just so much that goes particularly into a dairy operation that yeah. like, it's just not logistically feasible to be that small. Um, and it's not even like having more people we you, uh, you know, be more
1: awake, be more alert of your, uh, aware of your problems, have more time to work on paperwork. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of places are running it the same way. How do I say it as as a family unit you can't necessarily afford to bring people in? Yeah. Um. And you and the thing is, and that when you keep bring people in, you know, you can't necessarily afford to pay them well. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and that's called these problems in agriculture that you – how do I say this? I think farmers really do have to – if you're hiring people, you're not just, like, hiring farmhands. You're hiring human beings mm-hmm. who need to be paid and treated like human beings. Yeah. And you can't necessarily pay someone a living wage uh, out of a farmer's – out of a milk jack. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least not consistently.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's why I've kind of really been looking at other models of farms besides, like, the family model, which, you know, like, um, there's a small family farm. Like, when we hear a family farm, we think smaller, but the big corporate farms, like, quote-unquote, are usually family operations as well. It's just, like, a family and you hire on additional people as needed slash yeah. possible. Um, but there's a lot of other ways to do it. Like, there's a lot of collaborative farming out there. Like, I, I think I tweet a lot about the Hutterites. A lot of, like, native operations, when they first started, you know, like... During the colonization process, a lot of Native people were basically forced into farming, and because the tradition was to kind of do everything on the village level as opposed to individual families, they were like, cool. So they pooled their resources and got mechanized farm equipment and ran the whole thing as a whole community. And, uh, and the, the white folks who forced them onto the reservations and to farm were like, oh, hell no, that's not what we meant, because they were actually <laughs> successful. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, is so tragic and yet kind of hilarious because it tells me that deep down we've always known that family farming doesn't really work that well. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know?
1: I think, how I say this? There was also a time, you know, farming has moved very, very quickly. Um, yeah. i said this before, like, on social media, but, like, I have this kind of old family. My father was born when his mother was in her 30s. I was born when my mother was in her 30s. I had my kid in my 30s. Yeah. So I have this kind of, like, long... In, the, in family history, I kind of have a, a longer view of, of farming. Right. And, you know, I think families learn very quickly from... You have 12 kids to pick from about who's going to be the best farmer to take over this operation. Yeah. The most competent one. And suddenly you have, like, two. Yeah. Um, and I think we're still... I think the farming community is still adjusting to, um, I don't know, having birth control. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, that uh, makes sense.
1: Or, or I think, you know... I, I, Things, when you're handing things down through generations when someone's holding on to something for 30 years 50 years before they hand it over mm-hmm. change takes place very slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's been to the benefit of farming. Yeah. Um, we, we just are we haven't caught up necessarily with kind of the rest of the rest of uh, I went to the rest of the world because there's certainly parts <laughs> of America that still have their problems but uh, we've kind of been We've been stuck in our own headspace and our own practices for a while and not had to sit down and reevaluate them and readjust them. Yeah. But also when you're, dealing with, when you're dealing with family, family land, land that's been in your family, I should say. Yeah. Um, and your own home and your own history, you have a hard time thinking about it critically.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, I grew up in a really conservative family. and. Like was raised super, super, super conservative, like kind of fundamentalist, and it takes a long time to stop seeing things that way. Like (laughs) it takes a lot. So, and and that was after you know moving out, you know, um, and just working a lot of my own jobs and kind of having to 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 push my own way through the world, like without that community around me. Um, And so, if you're always surrounded by that, it's like uh, (laughs) that's
1: yeah, no, it's true. Like it took me. My parents are. We have differences, but overall, for farmers in this area of Pennsylvania, they're pretty open-minded. They've been physically active, um, but I started questioning different ways different ways farms could be run, different farming practices, um, animal welfare practices. Um, it took me a long time to start doing that. I needed to go through grad school and then work somewhere else, and then you know sit down and read tons of articles and listen to tons of podcasts and start asking why. Yeah. Um, and we have sometimes these intellectual separations I think they're kind of thrown for whiplash that my disagreements <laughs> are only happening in my 30s when they weren't happening in my
0: teens. Yeah, I know what you mean. That was that was definitely a thing. Um, like, back in the teens it was like, she's such a good kid and now yeah. nobody feels that way I anymore. I would totally
1: love to have me as a teenager. <laughs> like, if my son wants to like hang out with cows and play D&D, that would
0: be fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, and then in the 30s, all hell breaks loose. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you, because this comes up pretty frequently in agriculture, are there any misconceptions that just drive you nuts and or, like, amazing stories that we just really need to know about?
1: Oh, man. Okay, let me <laughs> think about misconceptions. Um, I don't think this is a widespread misconception, mm-hmm. but every time someone walks into a barn and asks where the boy cows, um, huh. I... I I don't know. I was just like, we don't really need them. And they say, "Ha!" Huh, I never thought about that. And I'm just like, how? Huh. How have you <laughs> lived this long and not realized that, like, boys don't give milk? Although, let me, I mean, there are hormone cocktails used to make them lactate. Yeah. Um But that's not something done on dairy farms. Yeah. That's something done in research labs. Right. Um, that's one. Um. Another one, and this is uh, and it's on the same vein, is, is veal. Uh, I know there's a lot of heavy feelings towards veal right now.
0: Yeah.
1: Or in, in recent, you know, since the 80s. Yeah. Um, but you, you can't, if you're a milk consumer, you can't remove yourself by, from veal by not eating veal. Veal is a BIPOC of the dairy industry, unless you're using sex semen. You're getting 50% bull um, out of your herd, out of a herd of cows, and something needs to happen to those cows, and our solution is veal. Uh, There could be other solutions, but that's our current solution. So you can't remove yourself from the veal market by not eating it. That just drives down the cost of veal and makes sometimes living conditions for those veal while they're being raised less ideal because the price is cheap.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. And I think people need to face that rather than being like, "Oh, I drink milk so I don't kill cows." Um. Yeah. Death is part of the system of dairy farming. But then the same thing is true about dairy cows. You know, mm-hmm. at the end of your life, you don't get like a gravestone in the pan right.
0: Um.
1: You get you get you get turned into ground beef.
0: Yeah, um, like a huge so, percentage of the hamburger comes from like old dairy cows.
1: And, and that's one thing. I'm actually into the lab-grown meat market. I follow it. I'm kind of, I'm neutral to slightly positive on it, but the fact that they're making ground beef drives me crazy hmm. because ground beef is the byproduct of the dairy industry and it's like what you get from all the little odd parts of cows. Great. Um, You know, it's not, there's no, um, how do I say the Ground beef is going to be out there as long as cows are out there.
0: Yeah. And
1: maybe you should start working on something else like chicken broth.
0: Yeah, like, um, nobody...
1: Which, which is... Life's also harder out there for a chicken than for a cow.
0: <laughs> yeah, nobody, like, raises beef cattle just to turn them into ground meat. Like, that's... It's mostly no. dairy cows. Like, beef cattle, like, to pay for themselves, they have to be turned into nice steak. And then, like, a few of the odds and ends turn into ground beef. But, like, the bulk of... Yeah, like, ground beef is from dairy cattle. And when if
1: you're talking about, like protein output and efficiency. If you have a cow who's producing milk through, you know, the average lactation on the average farm is 2.5, but that's low because that considers heifers that didn't make it. But, you know, if you have a cow who gets through six lactations and becomes ground beef, she's had a much larger protein, animal protein imprint for her life Mm -hmm. than just a beef cow. Right. So it's a fairly efficient way of creating animal protein from
0: matter. Yeah. Yeah, and it's really interesting how they kind of calculate out, like, here's the carbon input, like, a uh, footprint of beef, and you're like, is is that, like, is that a Hereford? <laughs> or is, yeah, or is yeah. that ground beef from a dairy cow? Like, have we even thought about this? Like, how much of the beef is really yeah, coming from I'm dairy? Yeah, I'm supportive of the
1: research because, you know, I think it's, I don't, I don't find it um, to be at odds with agriculture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm just, I question, like, that, that ground beef is their frontier. Right. um, Because I think chickens go through worse conditions, and we know that there's this giant demand for boneless, skinless chicken breasts. So, like,
0: why would not we just grow them without the chicken? Right. Yeah, and, like, the, the back quarter of the chicken just winds up getting shipped to China at low cost, or I buy them because I'm cheap, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. there's, there's so much more demand for the front half of a chicken, and then you're like, but we can only make a whole chicken at a time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So if you work in lab meat and you're listening to this, you know, there's, there's a hot tip <laughs> for research. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah. I don't know. Like there's, there's definitely like, um, I'm very interested in the sustainable ag- uh, agriculture part of things and making sure that we have good evidence uh, based decisions. And I think for the most part, uh, you know, researchers are going in the right directions, but there's, um, there's a lot of misconceptions and, like, just in the general public. And it's, it's sometimes it's, like, I don't know what's more frustrating, trying to communicate to farmers who have, like, they're set in their ways in a certain way. But also, um, I think folks who, like, learned about agriculture from Little House on the Prairie, and it's, I, it's not their fault. Like, it's, <laughs> like, I don't know how shoes are made, and that's because I don't work in the shoe industry, and that's fine. Like, it's not, it's not a moral failing, and I think we kind of treat ignorance about agriculture as a moral failing. And so um, people don't want to admit that they don't understand stuff because we're so, I guess, kind of militant about it. Um, and it is so frustrating sometimes that there's all these misconceptions, but you're like, it's not their fault. They've been lied to. <laughs> you know?
1: No, and, you know, it's, it's not their fault. And how do I say this? People, like, want food to, to be very personal and, like, close to them. And they feel as though they're, like... Their, their buying choices like super matter, yeah. um, and wanna say something about their personality. Yeah. And that all that gets pushed on to the food industry and they want you to tell them how good the food is and how, you know, they're paying more for something that's going to make them healthy or make them morally superior. And I you can't I can't tell someone that. And that's yeah. I recognize that that's gonna be one of my big uh, hurdles I'm going to have to overcome in marketing <laughs> yeah. um, is that I'm just going to like hey cheese tastes good right. um, because you know I can tell them about myself but I don't like when people put their own need for uh, you know feeling better about themselves feeling about the consumer purchases on me
0: yeah. um,
1: there's just they're kind of, there's definitely poorly made food out there yeah. uh, but you can't necessarily tell that from a label or even from a sandwich stick.
0: Right. Well, and you, you can't really you market food from a negative standpoint. Like everyone else says, but mine is it's good. It's just good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is usually like really what's happening. But you like that's not a great marketing pitch. It's not very polite to your neighbors, and it doesn't yeah. resonate. So.
1: Well, I do think I think one of the issues the dairy industry is having right now has been all the specialization of the milk market. Um, when you go to the store, I mean, we'll even put the whole nut milk nut milks aside, but if you see grass-fed milk, you see organic milk, you see A2 milk, you see, like, ultra-processed milk, um, and all that says to the consumer is there's probably something wrong with conventional milk. <laughs> and it's not a large leap from there's something wrong with conventional milk to there's something wrong with milk. Mm-hmm. Um I know that farmers really like to rag on vegetarians and vegans, mm-hmm. but I think a lot of the shift in milk consumption is actually in that margin that has kind of, like, heard about the keto diet mm-hmm. and heard about Whole30 and heard about Paleo, which has these vibes of, like, milk is going to give you acne mm-hmm. and, uh, it, you know, you'll lose weight if you don't drink milk, and I think people absorb that into their drinking habits because, you know the amount of beef we consume that hasn't decreased. The amount of like other dairy products, like yogurts, that hasn't decreased. Um, so I think people are absorbing something else that's out there in the culture, and people aren't really doing anyone else favors by try by by, by a, how do I say this? The more you specialize, the more people will become suspicious of dairy. Yeah. Um, you gotta do what you need to do to survive. So you can, like, you know, I'm totally cool if you won't need to do the organic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it makes consumers confused about, you know, a gallon of Land Lake creamer or hmm. a half gallon pint, quart,
0: yeah. Yeah. A quantity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, I, a lot of people are going vegetarian or vegan, um, but most of them don't stick with it. Um, whereas a lot of folks are kind of like really kind of doing the eat a lot of meat and like, like you said, like the paleo thing. Um, and it's
1: it's weird. My brother does the whole like low starch, high meat thing. And I've been a vegetarian since 2006 and family like dinners are just this like giant stress bomb because we need to find things that people will
0: eat. (laughs) Oh no, that sounds terrible. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my condolences, man.
1: I have good stories. Let's see. I'm trying to figure out what would be the, like, most evocative of an issue at the same time. Because, <laughs> let's see, I've had, I've seen customers wave crystals over dairy products oh. to decide whether they want to buy them. Okay. That's, that's been interesting.
0: Okay. The crystal just knows.
1: <laughs> like, in yeah. general, like, how does, I this moment with, like, with farming, like, guys so, are like, you know, don't, don't really talk about it. You talk daily about other people, they'll talk, you know, people, it it'll, it'll, it'll look bad about you and i'm like wait wait like no no, no. There's, there's this culture now that you like you call out people for being yeah. and I'm like i want to be the person who does that <laughs> um i don't want to be a quiet person
0: that's part one of an interview with rebecca Seidel, dairy farmer and cheesemaker in pennsylvania Jonas for the second half where we talk about agriculture and mental health the second half is publicly available. If your podcast app is not picking it up, you can get it on the Farm to Tabor SoundCloud. And again, there's extra stuff on the Patreon. So we'll see you on the second part.